Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. If you don't know me, my name is Billy, and uh, it's a privilege to get to serve here as one of the pastors, and that's a great honor for me to get to serve you guys uh, in that way. Uh, If this is your first time, uh, we want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, We want you to know everything we do here at Connection Church is about one thing, uh, one mission, and that mission is to connect people to a growing relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. And so you never really have to wonder what our motivation is because that motivates everything that we do, whether it's our worship team to our preaching to our kids and student ministry. All of it is about one thing, and that's connecting people to God and helping them grow in their relationship uh, with Him. And so that is what we are all about. And there's some awesome things going on at our church. Last week, if you were here, you had the opportunity to give uh, to Ukraine. We took up a, an offering for Ukraine, and I want to celebrate that you guys gave $15,000 to Ukraine last week, which is awesome. So, And that will go to some of our brothers and sisters and organizations that are on the ground in Ukraine to help them, as well as Missy that you guys heard from uh, last week, her and her husband. Uh, they have uh, some people on the ground over there as well, and so we uh, will we'll help them in ways, uh, hopefully, to, to just shelter. You can only imagine being in a situation uh, like they're in right now, maybe something that they never thought they'd be in. And uh, so it's cool to be the hands and feet of Jesus to be able to help them uh, in, in, in ways that we would want to be helped if we were in that situation. Uh, today, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Blake was here last week. Uh, we kind of started off... Uh, this new section of 1 Corinthians. If you've been with us, we've been in this series called Be the Church, uh, where we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And hopefully one of the things that you guys have seen in Corinthians is Paul is writing to a church uh, just like our church, right? And so it's in the town of Corinth. It's a local church. Uh, One of the things that will encourage you about the church in Corinth is they had a lot of issues going on. It was a pretty messed up church. And so people tell me all the time, Billy, if we could just get back to the early church. And I'm like, well, which early church? Uh, No, but seriously, you've seen all throughout the history, uh, even with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in God's church, there are issues. Uh, And usually the issues are caused by people people just like you and I, because we have a tendency uh, to become selfish and to kind of take our eyes off of Jesus And when we do, we need good teaching, and we need God's Word, and we need faithful men and women to come out of love and teach us. And that's what we see happening uh, here in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we've talked about a lot of stuff in the first 11 chapters already. Uh, Paul is kind of transitioning to a new part of uh, the church of Corinth, which is when they gather together. And so Blake talked last week about men and women in the church. One of the first things that he noticed when he came to the church gathering in Corinth is that there was not clear distinction in men and women and their roles in the church. And uh, God wants uh, the church to be a place where the culture can look into it and see uh, what God's design is for a man, what God's design is for a woman. And as we walk in those designs, we glorify God. And so Blake did an incredible job with that. Today, he's going to jump into them uh, taking communion together or or participating in the Lord's Supper, and he's going to correct a little bit about that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 17. 
If you have your Bible, you can open there. If not, it'll be on the screen. And we've already heard a little bit about this, but the, uh, the Corinthians were, were kind of notorious for having a favorite preacher or having uh, a favorite group of people that they like to hang around and click up with or uh, kind of segregating based off of how much money you had or what color your skin was. And, and so Corinth had some issues going on. And so Paul is saying uh, th- these issues are still there. He says, and to some extent, I believe it. Verse 19, no doubt there have, there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. Uh, one scripture, this just spoke to my heart this, this week. I'm not going to preach that much on this, but you can write this down. When differences happen in the church, uh, when conflict occurs in the church, the heart of God in people either comes out clearly um, now, we've done a lot of bad things, and we've walked through a lot of conflict and some issues in our church, but I don't know that we've gotten this far, or we've done this one yet, where people are actually getting drunk at our worship service that I know of. And so that's encouraging for us. Verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in, Paul says, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. In this matter. And so Paul starts out rebuking them. And and here's the thing I want you to understand about the Bible. Many times God's word will rebuke us before it corrects us and teaches us and then leads us. But one of the things that you'll see as you read the Bible is a lot of times you're going to read the Bible and be like, man, I'm not doing that or that sounds like me. And so I want you to know that that's okay because we know God never. Uh, confront sin in our life without correcting it and disciplining us and convicting us to move to life. He's not doing it to condemn us, and neither is Paul. So he's pointing out, and you kind of have to understand how the church in Corinth works. So when you think about the church in Corinth, don't think about like a building and a house or a building and a gathering like this. They would have gathered together in homes, uh, probably one home, and it probably would have been the most wealthy person in the church because they would have had the biggest home or at least the person that had the biggest home so that it could host that many people uh, together. And so they would have met there. And what was going on at this time was Paul said when he showed up at the house where all the church was gathering together, uh, there were certain people that were in the rich room, kind of the banquet hall, and they were eating together. And of course, they had nice food, price steak, shrimp, uh, lobster, all the nice stuff. But then out on the patio or out in the atrium or or kind of in the other rooms, you had all the people that that didn't have anything. They they didn't have any money. And most likely showed up late because they were working a nine-to-five job. Uh, And so they showed up, and uh, all the rich people had eaten all the food, so there was no meal being shared between everybody. The meal was just being shared by the rich, wealthy people, and then the folks that didn't have anything, the rich people were basically just saying, whatever, you guys kind of stay over there. And there was this huge uh, segregation between uh, the, the people who had and the people who had not. And Paul was like, this should not be. Like, this is not the church. Like the church is a group of people, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter how much money you have, no matter how much money you don't have, you work together, like you're together, you're a family and you care for each other and love one another and you use what God's entrusted with you to serve other people. Like this is what God's church is all about. And so Paul sharply rebukes them and says, there is division among you. 
This segregation into groups based on preferences and wealth and race and, and all these things is not good and it does not honor God. Not only that, you're acting selfish. You're basically uh, not considering other people that have less than you, which is selfish, and you're not seeking to build relationships with other people that aren't like you, but you're actually uh, clicking yourself up with different people that are just like you, and this is not honoring God. And not on top of that, he says you're basically prideful. And he really rebukes them in their pride because what happens is these more wealthy, well-to-do people were wanting to show off their stuff. Like they were bringing these awesome foods and all this stuff, but they didn't really bring the food to serve the people. They brought it to impress the other people that were like them in there. And Paul says this is not what the church is all about. And he even says it's not the Lord's Supper that you guys are eating. And, and it's important to understand that. And so it's kind of hard to think about this because we don't really eat uh, a meal together at the church, so to speak. We eat together in small groups. We eat together in other places. But the, 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 the issue is still the same. If you showed up in the church in Corinth and you didn't have any money or you were kind of uh, middle class to lower class, all the rich people would have been in one thing. They would have been eating the good food and there would have been maybe some rice out here for you and I. You know, and so it was just not a good feel that was going on there. And then not only that, but they were doing the Lord's Supper, but instead of actually knowing what the Lord's Supper was, they were just kind of throwing that in, and they weren't really doing it together. It was just kind of going on, and Paul's like, man, this is bad. And so he rebukes them, tells them they're divided, they're selfish, they're prideful. Uh, the church is not revealing the heart of God, and people are worse off than coming from your gatherings. I mean, that has to break your heart as a church. Like, God's saying, I would rather them not come to your church uh, than, than do it, you know? And so it's just, it's, it's not very good. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. So now he's going back to Jesus with his disciples in the Gospels where he implements the, the Lord's Supper. And here's what he said. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you, and do this in remembrance of me. At this point, the disciples didn't know that he was going to the, to the cross to die. He had told them a few times, but they didn't really know what he was doing. But Jesus is obviously saying, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to my, give my life for you, so do this to remember that. But then he also says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying the cup is the new covenant in my blood, and do this. And whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. And so it's important to understand this is what the Lord's Supper is about, remembering and proclaiming. So when we take the Lord's Supper together as a church, we are actually preaching a message. This is why non-believers are encouraged, or non-believers actually are not supposed to take the Lord's Supper. Because for you to take the Lord's Supper and say, Christ died for me, and I believe that, and I'm taking the Lord's Supper to show that, you're proclaiming to the world a lie if you're not a believer. And so this is why we as a church tell you every time, if you're not a believer, don't do this. There's no shame in that, and, but just don't do it because you're drinking judgment upon yourself and you're telling a lie, and God does not like that. So um, anyway, so Paul not only rebukes them, but he, in this, he corrects them and teaches them about the Lord's Supper. He goes back to when Jesus instituted this 
with his disciples on the night before he was betrayed. Jesus implemented the Lord's Supper. He said, here's bread, here's wine. Before, he opened the bread and he said, hey, this is my body uh, that will be given uh, for you. This, and then after dinner, he, he poured a glass of wine and they passed it around and he said, this is my blood that will be poured out for you uh, in the new covenant. And so he was showing them this is what was about to happen. It would symbolize Jesus's death. And so the bread, symbolic of his body, the wine, symbolic of his blood and the new covenant. And so when we take communion as a church, we are coming into a time where we are focused on the Lord. Like we are focusing on Christ, who he is, what he's done, and we are celebrating his death on a cross that brings us life and brings us this new covenant where we get to uh, be in a relationship with God. And, and in the church, this is a special thing. Like This is what unifies us. We're uniting in the fact that we believe this message, this is our God. We're united as one in spirit and baptism. All of these things uh, work together for us. We remember the gospel. We are proclaiming the gospel. We're unified together as the church. And then Paul goes on in verse 27. He says, so then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the body of and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. At that point, you should say, whoa, 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 whoa. I heard one guy preach this sermon, and he said, what happens when people die at the Lord's Supper? You know, and so what Paul has just said is that people are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and because they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, they are weak, they are sick, and some of them are dying. So he's linking uh, taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner with those things happening in our life. Now, we know the whole of Scripture doesn't teach that all of, you know, like you do something wrong and then God punishes you. But here we do see a, a case where sometimes when, when things are, when we're weak or we're sick or we're dying, it can be a result of our sin. Not always the case, but here he says, these things are going on in Corinth, and God is judging them based on it. Listen to verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, then we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. You see, Jesus is judging the church at Corinth and causing things to happen in their life to get their attention to say, hey, wake up. Don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Get your hearts right with God so that they can be right uh, with him. So here we see Paul warning them. So not only does he rebuke them and then correct and teach them, but then he warns them moving forward. He encourages the Corinthians to examine themselves before partaking in communion. He tells them that in their abuse of the Lord's Supper, uh, it has resulted in judgment. It already has, and it will continue to result in judgment. Paul says, when we, we must come to the table in a worthy manner. Now, that's an important thing. What does it mean to come to the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? Now, obviously, he's not talking about the fact that you and I have to be perfect to take the Lord's Supper. If that was the case, we'd all be dead, right? Um, and so what he's talking about, what I believe he's talking about uh, here 
is the fact that, that they have sinful attitudes and sinful actions that are fostering division in the church. And Paul's saying, because you're coming to the Lord's table with the wrong heart, with, with unrepentant sin in your life, you are doing it in an unworthy manner because the Bible and Paul and God wants us to examine our hearts before we take in the Lord's Supper. And when we do, uh, we should come to the Lord's Supper in a posture of repentance, knowing that, hey, we are sinful people and, and, and we need to be repentant before God. And we're in taking the Lord's Supper, we're confessing our need for Christ. But he very clearly says we need to examine our heart and our lives before we take of the Lord's Supper. So we must come to the table with a repentant heart, unified as God's church, focused on Christ, and then surrendered to him. Verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. So he's giving them a final instruction. Don't separate. You should all do this together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So if you're hungry, don't come to church hungry. Uh, that way you're not focused on food while the preacher's preaching. He doesn't say that, but that's a good truth. Um, but don't come in hungry like the Corinthians were doing where you eat everybody else's supper and people are suffering because of your gluttony, basically. Uh, and then he goes on and says... Uh, Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give you further instructions. So we kind of see him in that way. And so he wants them to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Like that's the key, that it unifies the church. It doesn't divide the church or make you think that people care about you less. It's actually a time where we can care about one another and it unifies us. Everyone's equal. Everyone comes in a posture of, I need Christ. I need salvation. And Christ has made a way of salvation. We unite in this way of salvation. We're remembering the same gospel. We're proclaiming the same message. We're considering one another more significant than ourselves. We're locked arm in arm in God's mission. We're all displaying the heart of Christ in our lives. And we connect as one body. And so it should be a very unifying thing that we do. And when we do it this way, God is glorified and, and people see Christ in us and in the church and judgment can be avoided and the church is going to be unified and people are going to experience Christ because this is God's plan for the church. It's kind of like Blake talked about last week. It's the culture should look into the church and get an accurate picture of Christ. Like that's the purpose of the church is that the church would be this beacon of light, this lighthouse for the world to look into and see Christ, whether that's what it means to be a man or a woman or sexual orientation or, or racial uh, reconciliation. It sh we should, the culture should be able to look into Connection Church, see our hearts for God, see the way we love one another and treat one another and be able to say, that's God's design. That something they're doing is working. In a world full of selfishness and divide and conflict and all of these things going on, you look at the church and there's a unity. This is why unity is such a big deal in the church. And unity starts with you and I both having the posture of Christ in our hearts. Because if you haven't been wronged by someone in this church yet, at some point you will. Like, hear me, I'm telling you right now, someone in this church is going to say something about you, look at you wrong, gossip about you behind your back. That's what sinners do. And at that point, you have to make a decision. Are you going to make 
action and do things based on maintaining the unity of the, of the spirit and maintaining the unity of the church, or are you going to jump in in the cause of division? And we as Christians have to fight for the unity of the church, even if it takes us getting wronged in the process to do that. Because who got wronged in the process of trying to unify the church? Christ. He died. He had to die. So the more we suffer, the better for Christ. That's the picture is that we are willing to do whatever it takes to maintain this unity. So the solution in Corinth is that they need to receive one another. They need to share. They need to be united in their Lord's Supper. And so there's three things that I want to talk about this morning and point out to you that I feel like Paul shows us uh, in this scripture. The first is this. The Lord's Supper is about unity in the body. Not that I haven't already talked about that enough. I want to look at it a little more. The second thing is that the Lord's Supper is about remembering the gospel. Like that's the picture. It's a message. It's a, an event that took place. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're fixing our eyes on that event and on that person and on that message. And then thirdly, the Lord's Supper is about personal examination and personal renewal. It is meant to be an edifying thing, a thing that builds us up in our faith. It's meant to be something that helps us. This is why the two ordinances in the Bible are so important. You know, the Bible kind of leaves us, the early Christians leave us with two main ordinances that the church is supposed to practice until Jesus comes back. Jesus instituted these, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And think about both of these things are meant to kind of bring us full circle. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's supposed to remind us of Christ on the cross for our sin, which is where our belief in Christ started. That's where the gospel message came alive for the first time in our heart. When you see a person get baptized in the church, it should bring you full circle back to the time where God changed you and you publicly declared it before and, and you celebrated that in your life. And so it's, a, it's part of it is renewing your salvation as you watch other people uh, go through the same experience that you went through. This is why it's so important. If you're ever at a church and they're not practicing these two things, then largely, if, you, if we can't fit baptism and the Lord's Supper into any one of our services at our church, we're doing it wrong because we've made the service not about Jesus. And baptism and the Lord's Supper is all about Jesus. So if there's ever a service you come to and it's like, man, the Lord's Supper really wouldn't fit in there. Or man, I don't think a baptism would make sense at that one. <laughs> then we're wrong. Like the, the service is not about Christ because these two things are about Christ, and this is why Jesus told us to practice them over and over until he comes back. So the first thing is unity in the body, unity in the body. So this is verse 17 through 22. Let me read it again so you can see where I'm coming from. I'm not making this up. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private supper. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Am I supposed to praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And so in that tone, you should hear Paul saying, unity is a big deal. 
Like it is a huge deal. It's a big deal to Paul. It's a big deal to God. Now let's define unity because that's one of those church words that you hear and it's like, oh, unity. Yeah, we need unity. What is unity in the Bible? Unity is deep fellowship and alignment with one another that results from a deep fellowship and alignment with God. So it's like as my heart aligns with God's heart, then another brother or sister whose heart aligns with God's heart naturally aligns with me. That makes sense? And so, because we have the same authority in life, like God's our authority, we're gonna be obedient to what he says. I wanna live for God, they wanna live for God. It's just an incredible thing. It's like being on the perfect sports team where everybody is about the team, nobody is about themselves, and you just see it work hand in hand uh, almost uh, like a synchronized swimming type event or something, you know, where it's just going crazy. This is not, the t- when I say unity, I'm not talking about, well, I'm not mad at anybody and nobody's mad at me. Like, that's not unity. Like, unity in the Bible is the word koinonia, which is a Greek word that's used all throughout the New Testament, and it's so important. Uh, Philippians 1, Paul uses it, and he uses the word partnership. He says this unity is like a partnership in the gospel. It's like the the best partnership you've ever been a part of because you're after the same exact things. Acts 2 uses it, and the word it uses is togetherness. You know, all of the believers were one, and they were all together, and they had everything in common is what the Bible says. And so it's, it's their devotion to God and devotion to one another led to a family-like experience when they were with one another where they were all moving in the same direction. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about it as if we're participating with the Spirit or participating with God. It's like when we're walking in this oneness and unity, we're almost as if we're a part of the Trinity. Like the Spirit of God in us is connecting us to God where we're moving on all cylinders where everybody is, is literally moving on behalf of God. And it's such an incredible picture. And this is what God's heart is for his church. How do we know this? If you look at Jesus' last prayer in John 17, and it's too good for me to not look at. John 17, I'm going to start in verse 11. This is his last prayer with his disciples. Of all the things he could pray for, what would he pray for? Listen to him. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer. But they, the disciples, are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be, what? One, as we are one. Now bounce down to verse 21. Later in the same prayer, Jesus says this. He says that all of them may be, what? One. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, he's comparing it to the Trinity, may they also be in us, all right, why does he want this unity? So that, that's a big word, the world may believe that you have sent me. Do we want the world to believe that God sent Jesus to die for the sins of people? Yes, how will they know that? By the unity of the church. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be what? One, as we are one, I in them and you in me. So that, why? Again, that word, that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
What an, I mean, that is absolutely incredible. Jesus prayed for complete unity so that the world will know that God sent him and that God loves us even as he has loved Christ. I mean, that'll just, just blow your mind. And when Christians are united in Christ, the world sees Jesus. They hear the message of Jesus, they see Jesus, and they see that God loves them the same way God loved Christ. And ultimately, this is our number one purpose as a Christian. And this is our number one purpose as the church. And, and, and Paul writes about it in Ephesians 3 where he says, literally, when, when the church is working this way in unity and then proclaiming the message of Christ and united together and everything, literally the manifold wisdom of God is being displayed in the world. That's like the biggest word Paul has in the entire Bible. It's like a, a painting is just being played and a, and a screen, a movie is just being shown to the world of God's love and his love for us and his purpose in the world. It's an incredible, incredible picture. And not only does God desire this unity in his body, he died to make it possible. So it's not like he just wants it. He did everything necessary to achieve it. So that now if you and I receive Christ in the Spirit of God, unity naturally comes in our life because the heart of God now lives inside of you and me. And this is what communion is all about. It's about aligning ourselves with Christ and our belief in him, aligning ourselves with one another as brothers and sisters, as a part of the body of Christ, as a part of the church, so that God is glorified and people see Jesus in the way we love each other. That's the first. The second is this. The Lord's Supper is about remembering the gospel. Remembering the gospel. Listen to verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Paul's quoting directly from Luke 22 and Matthew 26. These are the words of Christ. Jesus with his disciples instituting the Lord's Supper. Uh, you can imagine the scene. It's just an incredible picture of Jesus with his 12 disciples. He's getting to the end. He's about to go and be betrayed by a person sitting in the room. And he breaks out a piece of bread and he's trying to communicate to them what's about to happen on the cross. They have no idea. And he breaks this piece of bread and he says, this is gonna be like my body. And it's gonna be broken. And it's gonna be tainted and beaten and marred. And I'm doing this for you. And he takes a cup of wine after dinner and he says, hey, this is like my blood. And it's about to be poured out and it's going to be poured out for you. And it's going to do something special in you and in other people who are going to believe in it. And it's going to create a church. And this church is going to be united through this event that's going to happen on the cross. And until I come back for the second time, I want you guys to remember me through doing this. This is what he does with his disciples. It's an incredible, incredible scene. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And in this, you will proclaim my message. We're preaching the message of the gospel, preaching the cross as we take communion together. And it's meant to take our eyes back 
our, our eyes and our minds and just fixate them on the cross of Christ. And sometimes words are just not enough to do this. And so I want to show you a video that's going to bring our minds and our hearts back to Christ. So watch this. As you watch it, you say, Billy, that's so gruesome. Like, why are we watching? Why are we watching this? Um, and, and that's not even, I mean, there's there's more on the front end. I didn't even show that for the sake of I knew kids would be in the room. But I want you to understand, like, when we talk about the cross, you know, I'm not talking about a gold chain with a cross that's this nice symbol and it's clean. But when, when Christ was crucified on the cross, it was literally the worst kind of death that a person could die. And it was gruesome, and it, and it was it was not only that the emotional just turmoil of what he endured for us, his blood being poured out, he was laughed at, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was betrayed, abandoned, humiliated, he was literally stripped naked, he was spit on, uh, he he, I mean, he was 
punched. He was slapped. Everything that you can think of that would be humiliating. They literally tied him to a post and flogged him or beat him. We don't even see this today, but flogging or scourging was done before every crucifixion. The scourging was intended to bring a victim to the state just short of death. Also, it was painful, like the most painful thing ever. The whip had iron balls tied to a few inches from the end of it, each leather thong on the whip. Sometimes sheep, sharp sheep bones would be tied near the ends. This is the, the cat of nine tails that you're probably maybe familiar with. The iron balls would cause deep bruising when he was struck with it. And while the leather thongs would cut into the skin, the sheep bones would, would hasten the process of cutting into the skin. After a few lashes, the skin would be cut through and the muscles would begin to be cut. Blood loss was considerable. The pain would probably have put the victim in a state of shock. That was before he even went to the cross. And then they gave him his cross. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and they made him carry his own cross up to Golgotha and he couldn't. He didn't have the strength to do it. He was almost dead before he got there. Then they tie him to a cross, and they put nails through his wrist and through his ankles, and then they lift him up in the air and left him, left him there to die, the most painful death imaginable. It was death by blood loss and asphyxiation, which is just suffocating. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and when we talk about the cross, this is not some, some lighthearted thing. Like this is our Savior on a cross being beaten to death, not to mention uh, the spiritual reality of what was going on, of him literally taking on the wrath of God. We're just looking at the physical aspect of what they did to him. I mean, literally, he became sin on our behalf, so Christ poured out all the wrath and the fury due our sin, which is death, on him in that moment. This is what Christ was endured, terrible physical pain, paralyzing emotional pain, pain, abandonment, all in our place. Listen to what the Bible says, Isaiah 53, 3-7. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And every time we take communion, this is what we're looking back at. This is what we're looking back at. We eat the bread and we think about Christ's body that was given for us 
on the cross. And when we drink the cup or we drink the wine or the juice here, we're thinking about the new covenant that now because of the cross and because of the way, because Christ lived the life that you and I could never live and he died the death that you and I deserve to die, now through faith in him, we can be made perfect through his sacrifice. And we can be right with God, fully forgiven, fully accepted, filled with the Holy Spirit, all because of Christ, not because of anything that we've done, but only through faith, by grace, through faith in what he's done for us. This is what we celebrate. This is why we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left me crimson stained, but he washed it as white as snow. And now we get the joy of living in the new covenant but it was through Christ's suffering that we now get to experience this joy. Number three, the Lord's Supper is about personal examination and renewal. Listen to verse 27. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Paul very clearly wants communion the table to be a place for personal examination, for personal repentance, for personal confession, and then ultimately he wants it to be a place of personal renewal. And here's the truth, when we come face to face with Christ, specifically Christ on a cross like we just watched, that happens naturally. Like you can't watch the cross and understand it and not think about your sin that put him there. Like it just naturally happens when we see Christ, we are reflected in that, the sin that put him and hung him on the cross. We naturally look upward to the cross and then we look inward to our own sin. And then we look forward to now through our sin paid for on the cross through him, we look forward to now life after Christ, which is salvation and what he's done for us. But Paul warns us about taking communion in an unworthy manner. He says we should not take it in an unworthy manner. So the question becomes, well, what does it look like to take communion in an unworthy manner? I mean, that's the question of the hour. Like, if it's going to drink judgment upon me or you, then, Lord, don't. Like, I don't want that. I want to take it in a manner worthy of whatever Paul is talking about. So in one sense, Paul knows, like, we're all unworthy to take communion. Like, none of us deserve to come to Christ. Like if he gave us what we deserved, we would all bust the gates of hell wide open. And so part of coming to the table is admitting and knowing I need saving. And Christ has done everything necessary to save me. And so in that, that's why I say we proclaim the gospel by even just taking of the cup. Because we're saying I couldn't do it. And this is what it took for me to be saved. But then I think Paul here is talking about something a little different. And we know he's not talking to unbelievers because the table's not for unbelievers. Corinth, uh, the people in Corinth were, were saved. So he's talking to believers, and specifically the believers in Corinth were taking communion with an unrepentant heart. Like they knew God had revealed their sin, and they still had not dealt with it. They were, had sinful attitudes and actions that were fostering division in the church, and Paul had already addressed that, and they refused to walk away from it. And so he's saying, because you're walking in unrepentant sin, you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. The picture is literally this. This is as clear as I can make it. It's literally a person lying to themselves 
and the church in front of God. It's a person whose heart is not right with the Lord and coming and taking of this cup as if their heart was right before the Lord. Because when you take communion, listen, I mean, it is something we do together as a church, but there is a personal thing where you're saying, Christ, it was my sin that put you on the cross. And then on one hand, you're saying that, and then on the other hand, with an unrepentant heart, you're saying, but I still love my sin, so I'm going to continue to walk in it. Like, it's a, it's a complete oxymoron, and, and, and by the grace of God, all of us have done that before, including me. And when we hear this scripture, there should be fear in our hearts and in our lives to say, I don't want to do that anymore. I mean, and, and praise God, nobody had ever explained it to me in this way before because I used to just come to church, oh, we're taking communion today, bloop, bloop, you know, walk away. Oh, that's kind of a serious deal. But when you start reading the Bible and you start seeing what they talk about with communion, it's like, man, if my heart's not right with God, even as a Christian, I'm like, I'm not ready to take communion. Like, I'm not ready. And there's no shame in that. There may be people in this room right now, you know you're a Christian and you're walking in sin and you're not ready to deal with it. You're not ready. My encouragement for you today is do not drink of this cup. Because Paul says you are drinking judgment upon yourself. But I want you to know we are a church that wants to walk alongside of you. And repentance is the pathway to growth. And when Christ illuminates sin in our heart, whether it be the same sin they were dealing with or whether it be a different sin, it's all about helping you move forward. And until we're willing to be honest about our sin and willing to bring it to God and say, God, I don't know what to do with this, but I know it's sin against you. I need you to change my heart. I need you to put accountability in my life to help me walk through this. Then we're not ready to move forward. Sin in the dark is never sin that you can move forward with. We have to bring it to light. We have to confess it before God. And this is what Paul is wanting the Corinthians to do, to come to the table and come to the table with, an un, with a repentant heart and say, God, I need you. I need you to change my life. I need you today more than anything else. And so they were harboring this self-righteousness or this defiance where they just knew God was asking them to do something, but they were blatantly walking in disobedience. And there was just a divisive spirit of, of gossip and slander and, and favoritism and racism or whatever you want to call it in the church where they were just divided up and they were unwilling to deal with it. And the clearest way I know to think about it is the word for unrepentance in the Bible is the same word the Old Testament used for stiff-necked. Like, have you ever read the story, like when Moses is preaching or even Peter in the New Testament preaches, he uses the word stiff-necked, and you read it, and it's as good as a cuss word in the Bible. I mean, you know, you're reading through it, and it's just like, God, I hope I'm not stiff-necked, you know? Like, that's a terrible word. Well, the word stiff-necked, literally, this is how Solomon writes it in Proverbs. He says, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will, will be suddenly destroyed without remedy. To be stiff-necked is to have a stubborn, obstinate spirit that makes one unresponsive to God's guidance or correction in their life. And it's, a, it's, it's the perfect example of what unrepentance has looked like in my life before. And if you're in this room, unrepentance in your life looks like. You may not want to call it this, but this is what it is. It's where literally God in his grace is reaching out to you and you have a stubborn, obstinate spirit and you're unresponsive to God's guidance or correction. And that unresponsiveness may be you're just leaving it and just trying to avoid it or be ignorant to it or you're directly just defying it. But either way, the Bible would call us unrepentant and stiff-necked. Don't be stiff-necked. 
Like this is what communion is all about. It's meant to be a time of repentance. It's meant to be a time of renewal. Communion is meant to align our heart to God's heart. It's a time to reflect, remember, examine, confess, repent. It's a time to find forgiveness and refreshing. Listen to these scriptures. Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Like you find that, you find that promise nowhere else. No religion will give you that promise. When we come to God and we give him our sin, he says it's wiped away. As far as the east is from the west, it's gone. But listen, that's not the best part. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. How many of us need to be refreshed in our relationship with God? Every day, I do. He says you want refreshing. It comes, it comes coming to the table with a repentant heart, coming to Christ with a repentant heart. Listen to David in Psalm 51. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Not to mention David had just killed somebody, had just uh, committed adultery on his wife, just a terrible situation, and he comes, and listen to what he prays. Create in me, God, a pure heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, David, in his sin, he didn't run from God. David did a lot of stuff wrong, but one thing he did do right was that he always ran to God. And so listen, I, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you're running in sin. I don't know if you're, you're, you're away from God or you're with God or you're right with God. But here's the thing I know. Communion is an invitation, and it's an invitation to come to Christ and to bring everything that you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to find forgiveness and to find refreshing and to, to find a God that is willing and has already done everything necessary to make you clean, to make you acceptable before God, to make you loved before God. And so you may be here this morning, you say, Billy, I'm not a believer. Like, I, I've never taken communion as a believer. Well, here's what I'd say. What a perfect day to make the first time you've ever taken communion today as a believer so that when you drink this cup, it's true. You see Christ, and you don't just see him up there nominally on a cross that you've known since you were eight years old, but now you see it was your sin and my sin that put him up there. And you'd say, today I'm drinking this for, for me today. This is real in my life. Or maybe you're here and, and you're, you're running from God. Maybe you're like David. You, you, you think you've committed something that's too far from God. He would never forgive me for this. Today's an invitation to say, come back. Cleanse me, God. Make, give me a clean heart, oh God. Cleanse me with hyssop because he can. And all it takes is willingness from us. But Paul's clear, we must examine our hearts. So right now, that's what I want to do. I want you to bow your head right where you're at. We're going to take communion together as a church family to close out today.